0: We had a lovely staycation here in the great state of Texas in our home in the colony. People asked what we did, and I said, well, we, we moved back into our house. That's what you do on time off. My father remarked to me that he's enjoying retirement now because it means that uh, for him, he's not having to look to the next federal holiday or whatever to catch up on all of his yard work. I have three stacks of books that I keep running pretty consistently in my uh, in my world. I have a stack of books that's uh, going towards what I'm studying to preach. I have a stack of books that's going towards what I'm uh, maybe next teaching on or may inform something that may be taught or preached at some point in the future. And then I have a third stack of books. It's just whatever I want to read. Um, it may be a novel. It may be... Uh, A memoir. I remembered coming across a book that someone had, uh, several people had highly recommended, and I thought, well, that's that's interesting. I'll I'll take a look at that over this break. And it turned out to be one of the most uh, impactful books that I had read. So impactful, in fact, that I bought copies of it for all the staff. Because that's what you do when you love a book, is you give it to everyone you know, and you want them to love it as much as you do. And then they feel really awkward when they don't, and it's a whole thing. But at any rate, it's fine. It was interesting, because a lot of times, the books that, end, that are in stack number three, the things that have nothing to do with anything, end up having everything to do with everything. Josh Early, in his book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, tells this, Josh and his wife were missionaries in China. They had loved and served well for many years, came home um, because he was going to pursue law school. He went to law school. His wife worked hard so that their family could be supported. He got his JD and ended up working for a law firm in Richmond, Virginia, working on international mergers and acquisitions. He got to the point where panic and anxiety were such a part of his life. Of pills or booze, something needs to change. Now, the something for him was adopting what he called what he would later find out. Um, historians and theologians have called a common rule. For instance, Augustine had a common rule for his life. St. Benedict had a common rule. It's a series of habits or patterns that you put in place in order to achieve a sense of purpose and a sense of wholeness. And he realized for him that he was in a bad spot. He goes to define a habit this way. A habit is an action where the brain has been removed from the decision-making process. A habit is an action where the brain has been removed from the decision-making process. It is so ingrained, so deep down in you. It's at the basal ganglia, uh, the portion of the brain where it's just so deep in there, it just happens. Isn't it interesting? Of course, I had forgotten the sermon outline that I had filed with Colin and Laura before I went on vacation. It happens. I'm sorry. I hate to disappoint you. And I looked back. I was like, what are we talking about this Sunday? And I saw the title that I had pro- the chosen, and the title was Breaking Our Habit of Self-Sufficiency. Oh, boy. <laughs> so here I am, reading a book about these common habits that he has, one of his habits that he adopted in his world, which, again, this is a very 21st century book, Scripture Before Screens. Some of you may need to hear about more about this. really quickly, he says that um, we are all made to be a part of a story, right? All of us are made to be a part of a story. And we're always looking to answer the question, what part do I play in the story. The problem is when you get one of those screens in front of you, whether it's the one that you hold on your hand or the one that maybe mounted or the sitting on your bureau or mounted on your wall, see that screen is trying to tell you who you're supposed to be in the story. Are you supposed to be the indignant one, the outraged one, the better than one? Or it's telling you who you need to impress that day. If you dive into your emails first thing, or maybe it's telling you who's not very impressed with you. Or all the things you failed to do. Or all the things that if you had just done this, this, and this, your world would be better. See, we're all made for story. and We're all made to find where we fit in the story. And so the reason he says, Scripture before screens, the first thing when you do getting up in the morning is because you're looking for where, where, who am I and where do I fit in the story. And so to look to the Word of God and understand the story that we're all a part of. I don't have to impress. I'm beloved. I don't have to fear because the God of Israel neither slumbers nor... Have you ever tried to break a habit? Some of it's gone well. You know what your bad habits are? See, we are struggling with even identifying habits that we don't know are habits. There's a huge market these days feeding in to this notion of being self-sufficient. Speaking of books that are being published, here's one title of them. This, cod- this never-ending cottage industry of publishing, uh, here's one of the titles that I found. The Ultimate Self-Sufficient Handbook, a Complete Guide to Baking Crafts, Gardening, Preserving Your Harvest, Raising Animals, and More. The first question, of course, is if you're self-sufficient, why do you need a book? Most of us would not be so foolish as to announce to ourselves and God in the world, I am self-sufficient. See, we're more nuanced. We're more tactful. We're more... Instead, we say, I would like to work hard to have enough money so that I don't have to worry about money anymore. Dave Ramsey would approve. But what are we really announcing? I want to have enough so that when the unexpected comes, I'm still in control. See, we can find good classes and good scriptures to say and justify why we should be doing all these good things, but but here's the thing about it. It's all fig leaves. When I was in college, I was a music major. Music majors are weird. Because a lot of times you're registered for 13 or 14 or 15 courses at one time. The problem is some of these courses carry zero credit hours. Some of them carry a half hour credit hours. Some of them are one credit hours. and They take all your time. I could always, always justify why I was so busy. But the busyness was a fig leaf. Because I what are your habits? What are your habits? Being dependent makes us uncomfortable. Being vulnerable makes us uncomfortable. We want to be in control. We would we we all, all of us have a bad, and what I would venture to say is a fatal, potentially fatal habit of self-sufficiency. If you are being habituated by something that could end up killing, Micah is dealing with a people who are in desperate need of being rescued. But the first thing they need to do is know that they need to be rescued. We're in Micah chapter 5. Turn there if you would. It's printed in your program. I'll remind you while you're turning there that this is the part of Micah that prophesies about a redeemer, a rescuer, a shepherd to come out of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a place so small it doesn't even show up on the map. The one who would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Micah 5, the uh, second part of verse 5 through the end of the chapter. Stand. And he... This great shepherd shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us, from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off and in that day declares the lord i will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and i will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and i will cut off sorceries From your hands and ushans, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from us. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is God's word. Let's pray. So, what are the three things that we see in this passage that are needs for rescue? Needs for rescue. There's a need to be rescued from obstacles, okay? It's one of the things that you see throughout this text is the need to be rescued from obstacles. Here's the second thing that you see. The second thing that you see is the need to be rescued from ourselves. And then here's the third thing that you see. The need for that rescue to come from the outside. I want you to listen, my young friends, my young listen for these stories. And finally, I want to offer a word. The first thing in the text is our need to be rescued from obstacles. This is the stuff outside of us that is creating obstacles for us. Now, if you remember with me, and I mentioned this a little bit at the top of our worship service, that Micah has been foretelling the invasion of of, of an opposing army, and yet also saying the people of God are going to be rescued. This opposing army is going to get so close to Israel's king, he's actually going to go in the palace and slap the israeli king in the cheek a sign of great shame this is how close he's going to get this is how how total their loss is going to be but in the midst of it all there's going to be an uprising look at verses five. when the assyrian king When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. So there's a figurative phrase that Micah is using here, indicating that there's going to be leaders that God is going to raise up for his purposes. Um, This idea of God is going to raise up under shepherds. He's going to raise up under shepherds that are going to carry out the will of the great shepherd that has been promised here in the text. And then in verse 7, there is a promise. Look at what verse 7 says. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord. What does the remnant mean here? I don't want you to confuse this with the idea of a faithful remnant, that huddled mass of, of, of people that were really faithful and really loyal and really... this is all the sinners, this is all the scallywags, this is all of the, this is just every, this is just who's left after this desolation has rolled through Israel. This remnant that's being saved is not hiding away And this remnant didn't deserve to be rescued either. They're not hiding away in some sort of Israeli subculture, some sort of Israeli compound. So as to not get harmed by the world. But they are in the midst of many peoples. Look again at verse 7. Then the remnant, the ones who are left, shall be in the midst of many peoples. That is the idea of many nations. They are not cloistered off in some sort of compound that's safe for the whole family. They're among the people. They're among the nations. The remnant further gets described as not only being something, they are among the people. They also do something. Look again at verse 7. They shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Now, you have to remember that in the ancient Near East, this is an agrarian culture. And for them, water is life. Water is life. God is saying that this oppressed, marginalized, scattered people is going to be, is they are going to be life to other people. They are going to not just be scattered out among. They're going to be a blessing. That blessing is going to um, be evident in the flourishing of many people. There's also a victory coming. In, in verses 8 through 9, look at what he says. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young, uh, young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. I mean, that's, that's a decisive victory, is it not? That is a decisive victory because the time will come when the rescuer of God's people comes, when God's people will then be the one doing the treading. What is treading? Well, it's warfare, right? It's the toppling over and the casting down and the conquering. It's a thing. If you're putting all the pieces together, it's going to be because in the day and the age of the Messiah, they will no longer need the weapons of war, but rather the victory of the Messiah over sin and death. It's this view of life and love and world and worship and story where we find our hope to envision the world around us. Again, it's going back, and I know I've said this many times before, but I'll say it again because it's worth repeating. This view of how we as Christians interact with the world, there can be a view where we should fortify ourselves and put up walls and barriers and saying the world has gone off the rails, which it has, by the way. No denying that. It has gone off the rails. There was a near miss of an asteroid that flew by, and they're like, well, we missed that one off the rails. Christians can also tend to have the view of the world of domination. This is the culture war. We're going we're gonna to bomb the world for Jesus, metaphor. We're going to take back our cultural institutions. Then there's another one that's uh, equally, if not more so, problematic, and that's accommodation. Where it says, well... The world's bad. The world's changing. Let's just kind of go with it. Then there's this fourth one, incarnation, that we draw near towards our neighbors in the way that Jesus took on flesh and drew near to us. How you think about how you're going to engage the world defines the story of the world that you tell. See if you if you define the world as something that you need to be safe from, then the world is a fearful place, full of things that could ultimately hurt you or kill you. If the world is full of your enemies, it's hard to have compassion on people whom you hold If the world is something you aspire to, then there's nothing stopping you in bringing all the world's vision and values into your own life. But if the world is a place that is full of hope and wonder, not because of what it is now, but because of the vision of what it will one day be, because of the Son who came and lived and died and rose and is ruling and reigning and poured his spirit out and who said to us, in this world you may have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world you see when we get implanted into that story we go not in fear not in bravado but in humble hope we are all looking for where do we fit in the story and who's going to tell us that we're enough When we view our place in the great story, the story of the triumphant Victor King who has slain the sting of death and reconciled all things to himself and has compassion on those in the world who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, this story grabs us and takes hold of us and shapes how we ought to live in the world, a world that is still longing to find its place and purpose. After all, Paul said the creation itself groans. So how will the people of God tread? It's the upside down the way the gospel, It's the upside-down way that the gospel works. It's that the people of God are going to um, be a blessing to the world. Um, it's, we catch glimpses of this happening in the world sometimes, of things working in upside-down ways. There was a story that um, caught national headlines about a woman that had gone to, uh, to eat at a fast food establishment in Fayetteville, Georgia and saw an employee of this fast food establishment sleeping in one of the booths in the restaurant. She thought this was a pretty clear sign of lax management. So she went and she told the staff about their sleeping employee. And they said, Oh no, no, he's he's fine. Well, she would have none of this. She snapped a picture, she uploaded it to her social media people to feel victorious and triumphant over this employee. The picture got shared out, as these things tend to do. And the rest of the story came out as well. You see, the man was homeless. And so he was working hard because he has an infant son. And so he was catching a nap between shifts. When this story got out in the local news there in the Atlanta area, people responded rather with, instead of scorn and shame and how dare this restaurant allow this man to sleep on the job, they collected clothes for his son and diapers and offered this man ways to find a job that may afford him a more stable income so that he could ultimately provide for beloved whatever you think your place in the story is let me tell you this if you're the one looking at that neighbor with contempt rather than compassion it frames how you're going to interact with them. as one that has been sought and saved and loved it does different things to you. But here's the thing. As notable as it was that the community rallied around to remove some of this man's obstacles to provide diapers and clothing and, and means towards the ends that he would need in order to provide for his family, there is still yet more that he would need. There is still yet more that we would need. And even in the text, as Micah is prophesying to Israel, there is still yet more they need, which is strange to us because we think if they're overthrowing their oppressors, the problem is solved. want to think about being rescued from that which is inside of us. I want to start by reminding us of a story from the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. I was reading um, to my daughter over break one of the stories out of the children's Bible that we have for her. It was a story about a man who had a daughter who was very sick. For those of you that are um, Following along in Mark five, this is the story of Jairus. Jairus comes to Jesus and says that his daughter is very sick, and that the teacher should come right away. But there is another woman as well. There is another woman in the story that also was very sick, but she doesn't have a name, and that's interesting, isn't it? But that's what happens in. Jesus's day, when you are ill, or you're poor, or you're not much used to society, you don't get a name, you get a description of what's wrong with you. You're a leper. You're a prostitute. You're a tax collector. Or like this woman, she's been bleeding For 12 years. And she heard that Jesus was in town, and so she goes and thinks to herself, I know what I'll do. If I can go and touch the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. Jairus has come, and he's bringing Jesus through the throngs and the crowds of people. His disciples are going with him towards his daughter, who is very, very ill. And just in that moment, Jesus stops and says, Who touched me? Now, you know the story because you know that the disciples had to be thinking to themselves We're in a crowd. (laughs) Who hasn't touched you? But Jesus said, no. My power, power went out from me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Jairus must be thinking at this point? Who is this? teacher. My daughter is ill and we're wondering who touched him in a crowd. In modern medicine, if you were ever to go to an emergency room, the emergency room identifies the most severe or acute cases, the most life-threatening cases. Jairus' daughter is near death, and yet Jesus stops to address a woman who's been bleeding and has, I mean, it's not good, but she's had the condition for 12 years while spending time Word comes back to Jairus that his daughter is... Just for a moment, imagine this. That Jesus has stopped for a woman with a bleeding condition while spending time with her. Jairus' daughter dies. The circumstances are bleak. And you and I have been there before. Maybe not in this particular instance or in this type of situation. But we've all been there before where the circumstances in our life are bleak and they look terrible. And we say to God... Come on, God, why does it have to be this way? And yet, what Jesus does is he looks at Jairus and he says to him, don't fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. You don't have all the answers, Jairus, and you don't have all the perspective. When they arrive at the house, there's much commotion. There's wailing. There's yelling. There's weeping. Jesus says, why are you doing this? She isn't dead. She's just asleep. He sends them all outside. He takes her parents in with him, takes their daughter's hand, and says, little girl, I say to you, see, Jairus came to Jesus looking for help with an illness. And Jesus instead showed them resurrection. The woman who touched Jesus in the, cl- in the crowd, do you know what he said to her when she, when she touched the hem of his robe? And he said, my power went out. Who touched me? And he made her come out of anonymity. He made her come to him. This woman who was so ashamed, who just wanted to touch his hem and go back into anonymity where she had been, risked everything. And when she touched his hem, he called her forward. Instead of shaming her, he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instead of a nobody, she's a named somebody. Instead of just an illness being dealt with, we see instead resurrection Tim Keller says this, be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you'll give to him and you'll get from him more than you bargained for in most instances. You're going to give to him more than you thought you would, but you're going to get from him more than you ever thought you would. It's the same way with us and God, isn't it? We want help with our external circumstances We get those moments where our self-sufficiency fails us and we need a bit of help. We need a spot. We need some assurance. When Jairus went to Jesus, Jesus said to him, you're going to need to give control over to me. You're going to need to believe in me instead of giving way to fear. And when you do that, I'm going to give you more than you ever thought possible. That meant that Jairus was going to have to, even but for a moment, give up the very daughter he sought to save. This is, of course, what the Israelites are going to experience as well. They want liberation for an army. They're going to get under shepherds, serving under a great shepherd who will ultimately deliver the people, but God doesn't leave them alone. They'll be a blessing to all nations and be representatives of God himself. They aren't going to live in isolation. They're going to be out and among people. They're not going to, be able to do that. Any nation gathered, but a great kingdom scattered. But how is God going to do that? When God gets involved in order to rescue us, he asks us to give far more to him than we had expected, but receive far more than we ever thought to ask. You see, God wasn't done in removing their obstacles. Look back at the text quickly. Starting in verse 10. Look at the strongholds in verses 10 and 11. I will cut off your horses and destroy your chariots in the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. Look at the, um, the air, air quote, uh, wise ones. I'll cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune the idols that they had crafted in verse 13. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. He's taking them all away. The he's He's cutting them off. It doesn't feel like a rescue or a blessing for them. It feels like he's knocking their knees out from under them. But, but look at the text more closely. Look at it more closely. Look what he's forcing them to do because absence often forces us into a place of analysis in taking away their military power, they should ask themselves, what are we looking for in our lives to make us feel powerful? Where do we find our strength? By the way, these are fantastic questions that we should ask us, ourselves as well. He plans to cut off their places of retreat and refuge in verse 11. Remember, in the ancient Near East, cities represented safety. So what are you looking for for protection and safety in your life? He plans to cut off their attempts to control their future in verse 12. How do you try to control your future? (laughs) What do you worry about in your future? What decisions cause you stress because you feel that your happiness And their outcomes are intertwined. He plans to cut off their allegiances to false gods. I will cut off. I will cut off. God was rooting things out to rescue his people, to rescue them from them. You see, the problem, friends, is that we all have fatal habits of self-sufficiency. And in order to break the habit, God has to break something. And you know what he did. We need to be rescued from the outside. Israel needed God to show up and defeat an army. Jairus needed a sick daughter made well. The nameless woman just wanted to stop bleeding, continue in anonymity. But in all of these circumstances, our deepest distress was rooted in our deepest selves. We don't need assistance. We need rescue. We don't need support. We need salvation. We need rescue on our best days, not just on our worst days. We can't rescue ourselves. Our rescue must come from outside of us. Verse 6 describes the one that we described a few weeks ago, the promised future coming rescuer, the one who would come to be their peace and would be Jesus. God is going to rescue, not reject, deliver, not destroy. Jesus is going to be the rescuer by becoming the rejected one. Jesus is cast out so that we might be broken. Near. I'm trying to work on my bad habits. I really am. They're pretty tough to break. Some of my attempts at breaking them have been more successful than others. I try, but I often fail. The reason that I don't lose hope, though, in trying to break my habit of self-sufficiency is that it isn't up to my willpower or my effort or my gumption or my strategies or my plans. It's up to Jesus. It's all up to me simply to be needy and desperate to be repentant and to look to the one who came to be broken for me, who isn't going to let go of me, who isn't going to give up on me. Do you know that you have a habit of self-sufficiency? Are you aware of all the places that it shows up in your life? I can tell you how you can find it. Find the things that make you the most anxious. Find the things that define for you the most meaning. Find for you the things, find the stuff that you've cloaked in so much good intention that no one would ever question this thing to become the world.